0: On this episode, we interview Dr. Brett Barker. He's the mayor of Nevada and the vice president of operations at New Cara Pharmacy. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of RX Radio. I'm your host, Richard Waith, and I have with me an individual today that wears a ton of hats uh, in the pharmacy world and in his community. And I'm really excited to have him on the show, Dr. Brett Barker. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So I really thought I was busy. I thought I wore a lot of hats, and then I kind of came across what, what you do, and I was like, maybe I have a little bit more room for some more hats there. So um, uh, before we dive a little bit into kind of your day to day, Um, you know, and and a little bit more about you and and the future of pharmacy, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, I graduated from the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy in 2008. So as far as my pharmacy journey, it started in Iowa City. Um, I was heavily involved on campus with extracurriculars, which leads to the wear a lot of hats because that's just my tendency is to be heavily involved. Um, so a lot of what I learned actually extracurriculars on campus, I use a lot of those skills and what I do today. So a lot of what I, what I learned outside of the classroom became very, very important to, to me now. Um, I graduated, then became a manager of a community pharmacy in a town of 7,000 in Nevada, Iowa and did that for several years. Um, really was passionate about developing clinical services and things of that nature. So a few years into my tenure, I was tasked to become the director of clinical services for our company um, to help our other pharmacies within the company um, work on. And at the time, it was things like immunization programs, medication therapy management, um, those types of things, and did that also for several years. And some of the Projects I'd been working on, such as workflow and things like that, led naturally into the next step, which was vice president of operations. So a lot of the things I've done throughout my career, I started working on um, without the title. So a lot of times the titles follow the things I was doing. So I was director of clinical services and then started to work on some pharmacy design and um, we were acquiring, went into growth mode. We were acquiring newer pharmacies and I was part of the team that would help bring those pharmacies into the company. So then became um, VP of operations and passed on the the clinical role um, to another excellent pharmacist within the company. So um, that's kind of the the short version there. Um, Since then, actually, our company compliance officer ended up um taking on a different role a couple of years ago, so I'm now our corporate compliance officer. So I um, work with our compliance team to make sure we're doing our best to um, remain compliant with state law, federal law, um our accreditation standards, and things of that nature. So obviously, um in this last week, being compliance officer, I've been super, super busy with coronavirus, figuring out how we're gonna respond, watching how others are responding and making sure we stay on top of that.
0: Awesome. So uh, just to set the stage here, because I'm not sure exactly when this will be posted. And I just want to make sure, you know, depending on the time of what's going on with the nature of how rapidly things are developing with the coronavirus, today is Pi Day. Today is uh, March 14th. So um, if we missed any s- extreme emergency that's occurring in the world, sorry about that. But this is being pre-recorded. All All right. Now that I set that stage, uh, I have a, a super random question. Is uh, N- Nevada, Nevada like a tomato tomato issue like in your city or is that kind of like? not a problem.
1: Basically. Yeah. Um, everyone here uh, says it Nevada, um, which actually, you know, if you ask people in which I was a transplant, I moved here after college. Um, I was not a native Iowan. So I said it wrong the first time and was corrected very quickly. Um, and people will tell you, you know, the city was founded before the
0: state. Um, so, oh, okay. so they, they
1: claim, they, they claim that, 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 um, that Nevada says it wrong over there in the state, but, That's very interesting. um, is there it's any
0: actually, sort of correlation?
1: Um it, well one of the stories is it was named after a mountain range the other story was named after someone's daughter so i'm not sure exactly which one is correct but it was actually a thing during the last caucus cycle. we had reporters come from the Nevada um i forgot which no- newspaper it is um Nevada news state some type of newspaper in the vegas area came out Um, they actually came to town interviewed some folks did a story about the nevada nevada connection so wow. it was it was it was quite interesting um but yeah that that's The story there
0: okay yeah because i when you said it i was like wait a second he did not say nevada just now and that's what (laughs) i read so it kind of caught me off guard okay
1: yeah
0: all right um now i kind of want to dig a little bit actually into the compliance part of uh, your role because especially now that it's probably fresh in your mind uh, this particular role is extremely important um, for a lot of different companies because almost every company has to deal with compliance, um whether they're a vendor for a company that needs to be compliant or they're the actual healthcare organization or pharmacy that needs to be compliant. So what is that like in terms of how because obviously you have everything is different state to state. and being that you're a company's probably serving multiple states, What is it like in terms of prioritizing and kind of reviewing all that? Because obviously you can't just review everything at once. It has to be done over time. So tell us a little bit about like what priorities are and kind of what that role is like uh, being a kind of a a compliance officer in a sense.
1: Yeah, it's really a never ending role. We're always updating and writing standard operating procedures. We try to keep up with changes at the various state levels. So. I personally am licensed in six different states. Um, as a pharmacist, I feel that helps me to keep a better pulse and get updates from the different states, um, get their newsletters, those types of things. Um, also then it, you know, I, have I studied the MPJEs, took those law exams. And then also it helps me too, if, you know, if I'm out doing a site visit, I don't like to feel helpless. If a patient's sitting there and needs to be helped, I want to be able to help them. So, um, from a practical standpoint, that's been helpful, but, um, absolutely things change. Um, it's a, it's a big animal to try to stay on top of it. we, we, tr- Try to keep our general corporate SOPs compliant across as many states as possible so that we don't have to remember the differences between states. Um, obviously there might be some differences where that's not always possible, but that's generally the philosophy that I have so that, um, it makes it easier when you're trying to manage across, across state lines, but. Um Yeah, then also we have, you know, we have the accreditation world, the payer world, there's standards there. So right now we're going through our reaccreditation cycle and preparing for that later this year. So thanks to a bunch of things being canceled off my calendar right now, I've been spending time going through our accreditation bodies standards and trying to crosswalk those with our SOPs and making updates and those types of things to prepare. So um, yeah, it's, it's always evolving. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that go into it. You know, our performance improvement or CQI programs, depending on what terminology you utilize, um, fall into that role. Um, so yeah, just try, trying to be a resource and knowing the right connections, um, to ask questions. So I know that I, um, ask a lot of questions to make sure we're doing it right. Um, one of my, other hats is on the Iowa board of pharmacy. So I also have to be careful because I don't want to take my own personal interpretation and things like that. So I always try to, you know, bear things with our um, professionals that are compliant staff and make sure that um, that I do have and telling our pharmacies the right thing, because the last thing I want to do is tell them something and end up being wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that that definitely is um take takes quite a bit of time um but it's also like you said an important role because um you for a lot of reasons you know you don't want to get in trouble with a payer Um, accreditation is important because that allows you into those payer networks um and then obviously you want to make sure you're compliant with the state and federal jurisdictions that you're in so most states um have more of an, um, educational type of, of a mindset on the boards. At least, you know, that's what we have, have here in Iowa. I think, think that's helpful when pharmacies feel like the, the boards are a resource to help them do better and not police coming in there trying to play gotcha and punish them. So, Mm -hmm. um, that, I think that's a, important too. And I know not every state's the same, but that's, that's my own philosophy that if pharmacies feel like they can ask the board questions and cause you know, you don't want them to feel like they can't ask you questions. Cause then you're kind of come inspect them in trouble. Want to make them feel like, like the board's there to help them. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. Now, one of the other hats to throw into the mix here is that you're also the mayor of Nevada and, uh, you know, I I, I want to dive into like how you do all this and like what your day to day is like. But I really I'm curious to know about the process of like running for mayor. Was like like how did you even come to that decision? What did you have to do? You know, is it like a, a trad- did you have to do a traditional campaign and do all that all that stuff? Like tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Um- I first was appointed to fill a vacancy on the city council back in 2010. Um I had run at large and honestly we had a really not very good campaign, learned a lot of things not to do, um, especially on the local level and um ended up losing to an incumbent by 30 some votes or something, which actually I've told him today, you know, that's, it, it was a good thing that I lost because I'm glad he's still on our city council today. Um But yeah, I did that. um Then, was appointed to a ward that became vacant right after um, I had, um, I ran in November. The vacancy, I think, happened in January, and then the city council appointed me to complete the rest of that term. And then I ran and was elected to that ward. Um, we ended up moving within the city to a different ward. So I ran at large um, in 2015 for the city council at large and was successful. And then at that point, um, our mayor wasn't going to run again. Our city administrator had. Recently left, so we had a new administrator. So our form of government, we have a full-time professional city administrator staff, um, that, that is in the office day to day. Um, and then as an elected official, you know, we work with them quite a bit, but we're not there, um, full-time. And so the administrator role is very important. And then also our, um, city council people obviously are important. So about half the council was turning over. So with that much institutional knowledge leaving, um, looked around, felt that somebody who had been around and knew what was going on, um, should, um, uh, being a role to to run for mayor and talk to a couple of the other council members at the time and it was one of those it's like well i guess that's probably going to be me and yeah. i've never been the the type of person that needed to be at the center of attention right out front taking charge of things i've been more of a of a quiet leader is my tendency but um it's actually been a really really good experience the community's been really good and you know i've i've learned a lot from it too um still still am learning but it's definitely been been a positive thing and and a role that I've really come to enjoy.
0: Now, how does that affect, because I'm wondering, you know, obviously every city has its own dynamic, but how does that affect maybe like your day-to-day life? Like, is it something where you're always having people come up to you because they know who you are and kind of your role in the city, or did you see not a huge change there? I mean, tell us what that's been like.
1: Yeah, no, th- I mean, there, there are people, you know, if you go to the restaurant, you go to the grocery store that might have an issue, um, you're out and about in the community, um, might, a- might approach you every once in a while, get questions at work. People are generally pretty respectful about that though, um, and know when the right, um, and right venue, I guess, for those types of conversations are, you know, I always want to be accessible, but you know, like people at work generally know, hey, you know, if it's quick, Sure, no problem. But if it's going to be longer, they ask when we can have a follow up conversation. So um, that's always good. Um, and because I'm in and out of the pharmacy so much, that probably helps as well. I think if I were there every day, I'd probably have more of those conversations there. But um, but yeah, it, it's it's part part of the part of the game is you have you have to be accessible, and that's one of the beautiful things about local government is people. You are out there in the community. People do, um, know how to find you and, and talk to you. And, um, I think if you're not accessible, then, then you lose out on your effectiveness. So, um, for the most part, it's been a, been a really positive thing.
0: Awesome. So, tell us a little bit more about uh, the company that you work for now, New Car Pharmacy, um, or hopefully, I'm saying that correctly because I, you know, I'm not I have a good track record on this current episode on pronunciations. Um, but uh, tell us about the company you work for, and then being the VP of operations. Um, a lot of people ask me kind of because I have a fairly un- unconventional role for a pharmacist. They always are asking like, what's my day to day like, um, which is always a challenge to discuss because it changed rapidly. But I'd like to also present you that question because I feel like a lot of listeners hearing about the VP operations of a company like yours, they'd probably be curious as to what your day to day is like. So um, if you could just tell us a little bit more about the company and um, kind of what your day to day is like.
1: Yeah, so I'm with uh, Nucara Pharmacy and we are a regional pharmacy chain. Um, it started with a single community pharmacy in a little town called Conrad, Iowa, back in the 1970s. And T.J. Johns Rood started that pharmacy there, and he's still our company president today and is still um, very active and energetic and um, definitely a role model of mine. And he started that first pharmacy in the 80s. He banded together with a couple other independents because a lot of the pressures we're feeling now in the industry they were starting to feel in the 80s and said, hey, you know, strengthened numbers. Let's work together. And throughout the nineties had grown so the more pharmacies got into some specialties such as compounding in the nineties, um, and really started, started growing, um, throughout, throughout that time to today. So, um, we had gotten really big in the long-term care space in the two thousands and then made, you know, decided to focus back on community, community-based care. But recently, have gotten back into long-term care pretty big because of consolidation in the market. A lot of the homes um, were looking for more of that high-touch care. And so, you know, that that's um, was an opportunity for us. So we're very much into that um, high-touch care. And, you know, when we're looking at the industry, we see kind of the race to the bottom who's going to you know, fill the most prescriptions with the least amount of of effort, as far as you know, the most prescriptions per hour. And there's that numbers dispensing game, but we really focus on on the care aspect. So um, we definitely still have the rural backbone, community pharmacy backbone, but we are in markets as big as Chicagoland, Illinois, and Austin, Texas, all the way out to really small towns in North Dakota. Um, so definitely have have a diversity everywhere from you know telepharmacy, traditional community pharmacy. Home medical equipment, um, we're very big into that, long-term care, compounding, infusion. We have infusion suites, transportation, um, non-medical home care, um, quite diverse and really are built around keeping patients active and independent in the lowest cost of care setting possible. So um recognizing for a lot of people, they want to be active and independent at home, um, but it might reach the point that that's not possible, but really trying to provide all of those services necessary for those patients. Um, and as far as my day-to-day role, um, it's like I tell students when, when I have a new pharmacy student coming along is, you know, every day is going to be different. You never know what fires are going to come up that we're going to have to put out. Um, I I do still try to stay active as far as in practice. So I try to be um, there in the community pharmacy a day a week um, to, to stay fresh in that regard. Um, but other than that, there are site visits, pharmacy association meetings, lobbying at the capitol. Um, board of pharmacy meetings, um, different conferences, um, things of that nature. So there, there's a lot that goes into it and it's definitely, definitely a lot of juggling. Um, lots of emails come in, gotta, gotta take care of, care of those more mundane things as well, but definitely try to, um, balance all of that. And, um, we have a great team and that's really what I rely upon in all of my different environments is a really strong, team of people around me um that we're able to work with and all kind of get get all the best people on the right seats on the bus and make sure that the thing's moving in the right direction
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense now uh recently one of the um more active uh posts that we had on social media i think was around uh something around check uh i always have a hard time saying this but tech check tech uh (laughs) And you were pretty active on, in responding to some of the conversations around that. And um, I don't think I haven't talked a lot about it here. I talked about the expanding roles of technicians a lot, um, and how you know as things change and as as automation starts to come more into play, um, and allowing pharmacies uh, pharmacists to practice a little bit higher at their license, um, you know, there's more roles for technicians available. So can you give us kind of like a brief primer as to what Tech Check Tech is? And, um, you know, the impact you've seen it have because I think your company is is probably it sounds like your company is doing something with it. Now, I'm going to probably follow up with some questions on there. But before I do that, I want to set the stage and saying that, like, I'm actually in support of this because I do know the benefits of it and I think it makes sense. Um, But I'm going to play the devil's advocate a little bit uh, in terms of kind of challenging some of the concerns that a lot of people out in the community have. So um, so if you can go ahead and just give us a little primer and, and we'll just jump into a little bit.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. And yeah, one of the things that came up was I was on Twitter and saw somebody comment about some of the studies that had been done on it. And generally, I my rule is I don't engage, especially with more anonymous Twitter accounts, because sometimes it, it doesn't go very well. Yeah. But, um, you know, it was a, it was a nice, respectful conversation, I feel like. And, um, good, good concerns and questions were talked about, but it's something, it's one of those topics that I've been involved with basically my entire career. So I talked about TJ a little bit earlier. Um, but he is a past president of our state pharmacy association. And back when I was a new young, new grad, young pharmacist, he said, hey, we're going to go to this meeting um, it was over in Makokata, Iowa on the Osterhouse porch, which anyone from Iowa knows what that is. There's actually the College of Pharmacy at the University of Iowa that they just opened has an Osterhouse porch balcony that overlooks campus. So it's um, Bob and Matt Osterhouse, their father, son, past presidents of APHA, um, definitely legends in the field as far as leadership. And so I go to this meeting as a brand new grad um, with a bunch of past presidents of APHA and our state association and talked about, you know, in community pharmacy, how we can get to where we need to go. You know, we know we need to practice clinically. We know we need to practice at the top of our training, but we also have this economic reality of, of reimbursements and, and things of that nature. So it's a chicken or the egg. You know, we have to prove ourselves before we can get new revenue streams and how are we going to do that? So what... Really hampers in community pharmacy is you feel like you have a bungee cord attaching you to that counter. Every time somebody wants a refill, they walk in, you know, they, they want that refill and they want to wait and they want it now. And you're in the middle of trying to do something more clinical that takes, takes more time and, and effort and thought. Um, and, you know, as technology has changed, um, technicians, um, in our state are now certified, um, and, and in North Dakota, for example, they have to do a, a full accredited ASHP program. It's an even higher level. So technicians are, are being educated at a higher level in most states. Pharmacists have been coming out with doctorate level degrees now for about 20 years. And um, a, a lot of folks are underutilized in community pharmacy. So we um, put together a task force in the state that at first was informal and then the state association officially adopted it as a state association task force. And then the, one of the first things was um, the association sought um, from the legislature, the to give the board of pharmacy, the authority to grant pilot projects um, to waive portions of code for demonstration research purposes and pilot projects. So um, uh, previous to that, there was, check check tech in hospital settings but not in community so the board of pharmacy after being granted that authority did um approve a pilot program of a handful of pharmacies across various practice um, settings to do um, what now we call technician product verification i can get into that terminology change but they approved that and then drake university did research sur- surrounding that. So it, there was research collected. Um, we really dove into error rates and things things of that nature. And um, it ended up being a successful pilot. Um, and then there was legislation to make it a permanent practice in the state. And then the Board of Pharmacy had to promulgate rules based on that to govern the practice. So now we have um, technician product verification in the community setting in our state. And um, one reason we changed the terminology, is you hear tech, check, tech. And a lot of folks said, well, what are they actually checking? You know, <laughs> what's yeah. going on I here? I can't even so say it
0: right. Like, <laughs> I was getting my words, like, mixed together when I'm trying to say it. So I'm glad we're changing <laughs> yeah. it.
1: So, yeah, we, we now call it technician product verification. That was one thing, you know, at the time when this is going, so I've seen this from all levels as a practitioner. And then I was on the state association's legislative advisory committee, and then I was on their board of trustees. So I've seen it from multiple angles as it's progressed through the pipeline. And actually I, on the board of pharmacy was able to vote for the final rule. So it's kind of neat to see it in my different roles as mm-hmm. I progress, see the, um, see the project progress to completion. But um, you know, I was on the legislative advisory committee at the time saying, you know, we really people, wound up when they hear tech check tech they don't know exactly what it means they they get pictures in their head kind of like telepharmacy which we could talk about as well but they, they get something in their head and don't really and it's not really accurate to what you're trying to accomplish so you know that's where technician product verification came from because it, it's a technician verifying a product is really really what it is you know they're using technology to barcode scan the images come up on the screen they're just making sure um, you know, that's Lipitor in that bottle. That's what, that's what's supposed to be in there. And then obviously the pharmacist is responsible for all the DUR, all the counseling, all the clinical aspects of the dispensing process. They're responsible for overseeing the, the things that things are being done according to SOPs um, and overseeing the overarching program, but they don't actually have to handle every single product that goes um, through the process.
0: So one of the things that I hear the most pushback is, is, you know, the pharmacist saying, you know, I'm not letting that happen under my license, you know, and a lot of times the pharmacist thinks that, which, I, which I'd like to ask about, a lot of times it's assumed that if there's a problem with that verification, that product verification from that technician, that that problem lands on the pharmacist. How, what is that li- liability like? And, um, you know, are pharmacists justified in saying, I don't want this to happen because it's it's my license that's on the line? Yeah, you know,
1: and, and obviously, you know, you, you have to take Your license very seriously. You know, we we put a lot of time and effort into gaining it, um, and you want to maintain it. But but really, it's similar to like a pharmacist in charge and a staff pharmacist. You know, if the staff pharmacist makes a human error, but the pharmacist in charge is is ensuring safe operation of the pharmacy, um, generally the pharmacist in charge is not going to have any repercussions from. The human error that was made. Um, and it's the same thing with technician product verification, you know, the pharmacist in charge is responsible for overseeing the entire program. And, you know, the pharmacist on duty is responsible for just ensuring that things are being practiced, um, in a safe way. So, um, as long as they the procedures are being followed, there's nothing, you know, completely negligent being done by the pharmacist. In my opinion, um, it, it is, a um, safe from, a from a legal standpoint, I guess, um, with lack of liability standpoint, lack of a better term. Um, and so, you know, for me and my license, I'm comfortable with that. And I think a lot of folks are, I mean, we see it being, being done, um, across our state now and continuing to grow, but really, you know, you're responsible as the pharmacist for making sure that it's being done properly. You're not, you're not going to be held responsible because, um, a human error was made as long as the program itself is complying.
0: Gotcha. And the next thing I I hear a lot is, you know, technicians don't have the education to do that. Um, But a lot of times I think when you hear uh, tech, check, tech, you think they're also doing like the DURs and checking all the clinical stuff, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, And then you also mentioned there's other trainings that the technicians are doing. So what do you say to the pharmacist that's like saying that they don't feel the technician has the ability to do that?
1: Yeah. And, and I tell, tell pharmacists too, you know, not every technician is going to be appropriate for that role. I think we all understand that, but any pharmacist knows the technicians they've worked with that are, that are capable with that. I mean, we, we all have, have, we, we can point to the technicians we've worked with and have some really excellent ones that are really capable of, of doing things like that. And so there, there is, it has been additional training. Um, there's actually training modules specific to technician product verification that all of our technicians that go through. Um, and it was part of that was required for the pilot program was, was going through those training modules. So um, there's um, training requirements. I mean, like I said, all technicians in our state are already served, but there's experience requirements modules that they, that they have to go through. And, you know, technicians, are are very very bright um and and are are critical to what we do already um and then it's like i said with technology that's there the barcode scans um things of that nature so for example that they can only do the technician product verification for items that are able to pass the automated or the um, computerized checking so they have to pass that barcode scan before they can be dispensed if it doesn't then the pharmacist has to has to be the one to do that. So um, anything that's going to take um, more of that in depth knowledge to to check um, absolutely is going to be the pharmacist. If it's uh, things that are high risk are are often excluded as well. Um, so high risk um, narrow therapeutic index type things um, can be excluded. So it's really. Um, Defined as, as what can be and what can't be and what situation, like some pharmacies are going to say no, nope, no new ones, only refills and, um, and th- things like that, depending on what they're comfortable with. But, uh, I, I don't question the level that there are technicians that are fully capable of doing that. But again, I mean, you have to evaluate your staff and know who, um, has the, has the capability and the knowledge to do that
0: and what impact have you seen it have kind of out in practice? And I know you said, you know, there's a potential um, introduction for, or opportunity for telemedicine with um, tech product verification. So can you elaborate a little bit?
1: Yeah. So um, some things already, you know, there are opportunities that we are taking advantage of clinically um, that it allows us to, to have a little bit deeper impact on. So Um, Some examples are our Blue Cross Blue Shield plan in the state of Iowa has a value based pharmacy program that actually pays pharmacies out of the medical spend bucket um, for their um, quality scores and quality measures. So um, it's, it's actually pretty neat that it's not just trying to redistribute money that's quote in the pharmacy bucket and it's completely separate contracts from the pbm so it's a separate payment mechanism it doesn't even go near the pbm and we're paid for those quality measures so having a program like this with technician product verification lets the pharmacist spend more time digging into things that can impact those quality measures so they can spend more time on adherence um there's the the uh, community pharmacy services networks that are now, I think basically across the country, it lets them do the clinical med sync and the, the pieces of that program to, to do that at a higher level. Uh, we're part of some enhanced MTM in our region for Medicare part D. So we're able to do, to attack more of that. So really, um, my goal is, um, because dispensing takes up so much time we've had to centralize some of our clinical functions and as much as possible we want to in, um shift that paradigm and push out as much clinical um functions to that frontline pharmacist that knows their patients better um that's the, the best place for it face to face with the pharmacist that's that's closest to the patient um so that's that's really what we're trying to accomplish with that um And uh, you mentioned, you know, telemedicine and telepharmacy. So, you know, telepharmacy is another advanced technician role um, that that we take advantage of within our company and something that we were part of the pilot phase on in our state as well. Um, And Really, what we see are, you know, pharmacies in rural areas that are in danger of closing their doors entirely and sending patients elsewhere. And so it, it's definitely been a really good tool for us. You know, the pharmacist is doing the exact same things. They're just not physically standing shoulder to shoulder with the technician. They're doing it through technology. So they're still verifying data entry, verifying The DUR, the clinical aspect, they're counseling the patient, and in telepharmacy, they're still verifying the product as well. So there's not the technician product verification at this point with telepharmacy. So, both of those I feel like are similar roles. It's a role for advancement for technicians to make it more of a career and less of a job. So, you know, if they have the opportunity to advance, they're more likely to stick with it and make a career out of it.
0: I never thought of it as a way to keep a pharmacy operating. That's actually a pretty interesting kind of paradigm shift to think about.
1: Yeah, and, and we've done that in our own company. There was a, a pharmacy in a town called Monona, Iowa, which is far northeast. The pharmacist used to go to the hospital for half a day and then to the community pharmacy for half a day. And he was looking to retire and nobody was, um, likely going to purchase that pharmacy, especially a new grad coming out with student dead and, you know, trying to establish themselves a lower volume. Operation like that, you know, that's not something that probably was going to be acquired by anybody else. So, um, and that's really what we were looking at when we got into telepharmacy is just the demographics across, um, across our entire region where you have uh, the majority of independents out there, especially in the rural setting that are within 10 years of retirement age and what's going to happen. And, you know, you look at folks like myself that graduate with boatloads of student debt, you know, we're not very eager to take on, take on more, especially in a risky environment. Um, so, so those towns are definitely in, in danger of losing pharmacy. Did you hear about pharmacy closures. I mean, speaking of Twitter, the, my feed's full of news about pharmacy closures yeah. and the, and the pressures there and, how, you know, the statistics behind it and DIR fees and why that is. But, um, so this pharmacy in Monona we purchased and now because of telepharmacy, we're open full, eight or nine hour days every day of the week. Um, so we have more access for patients in the community and we still have a pharmacist in there a day or two a week um, to, to take care of all those um, in-person clinical things like immunizations that can't happen obviously through telepharmacy, but it, it maintains that access and that gateway to, to pharmacist services.
0: That's very interesting. So what would you say is the most exciting to you about kind of the future of pharmacy and, and kind of where things are going?
1: yeah i mean i obviously you know the, you know you see things like um large amounts of students graduating and supply and demand and those types of things but at the same time you see the the larger pressures on the system and you know the healthcare system has a lot of pressures one of the biggest drivers of cost is medications and medication misuse and um, lack of adherence and those types of things. And as a medication expert, I think we're uniquely positioned to have an impact on the healthcare system. And I see more and more folks from policymakers to physician colleagues and whatnot recognize that. Um, and so I'm hopeful we'll be able to fill that role and then the supply will come in handy. Um, but really, you know, when folks I see clinging to that traditional dispensing role with white knuckles, you know, the, the healthcare system is figuring out it doesn't need um, a doctorate trained pharmacist to do product verification. I mean, you see the reimbursement rates and what, what they're happening, but we do have a role with those clinical decisions and those clinical programs and, you know, community pharmacists are vital. We're one. We're, they were the most successful healthcare provider. And I think um, the public recognizes that as well. And so, you know, if we're not willing to step up into that medication expert role, somebody else is going to, whether that's nursing or whoever, somebody is going to step into that medication expert role. And I think we're most uniquely suited to do it. And I think, you know, you see the progress towards PBM reform, you know, state after state after state, state legislators are super hungry to, to tackle that because it's a huge win for them and it's a no-brainer. Um, yes. And I think you'll see federal officials, you know, they're talking drug pricing, drug pricing, and more and more. I mean, Chuck Grass, Senator from our state, has been really big on DIR reform. And so I think there's, um, F, or there's changes there. And then the Supreme Court, which, um, hopefully as soon as next month, maybe, um, hopefully, um, we'll see, uh, but that, Either way that goes is going to be the most transformational ruling affecting our profession that I know of legally. Um, the fact that the Supreme Court took it up is a huge deal. So I think there's definitely a lot of opportunity. Obviously, there are still some challenges. I mean, one of the the analogies I heard that was really good is actually from a hospital administrator, but it fits for us too. He said, you know, we're going down the river, we have a foot and two canoes, and we're trying to transition into the value-based canoe before we fall in the water. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's really yeah. how we are in, in pharmacy too. The the fee-for-service um, model in healthcare is continuing um, to to kind of dwindle away, and we have to be ready for that value-based care um, model.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, actually. I mean, I, I could... I can I can't really think of something more accurate honestly. <laughs> I think it's legit. <laughs> yeah. Um all right, so bonus question. If you had to take one person out to dinner and that person had to be famous, which means they should have a Wikipedia page so someone could look them up, and they have to be alive. Who would that person be and why? But but you can't choose any the current president or any of the past presidents that are still alive. But who would that person oh, man. be and why?
1: that's rough because I really am a, you know, into presidential history. So you just took a bunch of them off the table. (laughs) Um, gosh, one person I could take out to dinner. Um, and was that basically the question?
0: Yeah. And who would it be and why?
1: Oh man. Well, maybe I'll say Patrick Stewart because I've been a huge Star Trek fan and he, um, seems like a, he's, he's just a really interesting, incredible actor. So I'll just go off the top of my head with
0: that. Since, okay. <laughs>
1: you know, he, has, he has his new show right now, and I see him all around, so oh, it came easy. to mind first. <laughs> cool.
0: Cool. All right, Brett. Th- this was a great conversation. What's the best way if someone wanted to connect back with you after the episode?
1: Sure. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. My handle's just Brett Barker. Um, LinkedIn as well. I'm out there. Um, so those those are two easy ways that you can find me fairly easily.
0: And I'll shrink that. I'll I'll shink. I will link that information in the show notes below. (laughs) Uh, Brett, thank you so much for the conversation. Really appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey guys hope you enjoyed that episode i do apologize for a little bit of the service issues with my cell phone but uh, either way i hope you guys enjoyed that episode i sure did make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet connect with me on any of your favorite social media platforms just search rx radio and i'm sure you'll be able to find it whether that be twitter facebook linkedin or instagram as always thank you so much for tuning in i really do appreciate it appreciate you taking the time and effort Uh, to sit and listen to an episode or run and listen to an episode, however you do it. Thank you. And I hope you have a great rest of your day.